Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our topic for today is Bigfoot, or Sasquatch, or the term, my guest for the hour, Jeff Meldrum, professor at Idaho State University, prefers relict hominoid. Whether you be, uh, believe in Bigfoot or Sasquatch or not, there is polling um, on this question, by the way. We'll talk about that this hour. Uh, it does make for an interesting discussion, and included in this conversation, the nature of scientific inquiry and shifting paradigms in our understanding of evolution. Here's my conversation with Jeff Meldrum from November of 2017. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us in studio for the hour uh, one of the foremost experts on uh, Sasquatch. He's a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. We're talking about Jeff Meldrum. He's author of Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. Here's what he has written. It's one matter to address the theoretical possibility of a relict species of hominoid in North America and the obligate shift in paradigm to accommodate it, but there must also be something substantial to place within that revised framework. There must be essential evidence to lend weight to the hypothesis and counter critics' various aspersions. I once confronted, uh, was once confronted by a colleague who declared, after all, these are just stories. My response, stories that apparently leave track, shed hair, void scat, vocalize, are observed and described by reliable experienced witnesses. Hardly just stories. Um, others uh, mock this notion as pseudoscience, but fail to explain their justification for that label. The debate rages, and we have with us in studio Jeff Meldrum. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, coming down. Uh, fairly pleasant drive, hopefully, from Idaho State. It is, yeah. Good weather. Always iffy this time of year. Beautiful city of uh, Pocatello. Um, so uh, when we, and, and you've, you've written in a paper, no legend without history, no history without legend. Right. And when we say the word Sasquatch or mm-hmm. Yeti mm-hmm. or uh, any of these things, I think many people, they go to legend, right? right. Their idea goes to legend. Um, you're saying there is some scientific evidence that, um, that, that there are relict hominoids. And I guess maybe that's a place to start. What do we call these? Sure. Well, there, there's a variety of names, and, and, and some that I prefer and some that I tend to shy away from. Bigfoot has such a connotation, such a tabloid stigma now attached to it that I, I try to, to uh, distance myself from that. I, I prefer Sasquatch because out of deference to the Native American traditions that go way back to part of that uh, couplet that you related, that uh, legend and history as they, as they meld together in a way. Uh, even Sasquatch, though, has has taken on um, through commercialization and sensationalism, um, you know, a, a less than serious connotation. And so I, I try to get uh, people to to use the term relic hominoid. It was first coined by a, a Russian investigator, Dr. Boris Porzhenev, and uh, you know, to to address the issue of the possible persistence of of hominin or hominoid species that have lived along side our lineage for for millennia and uh, and may have persisted into the present um uh, i want to talk about one one thing you bring up in the paper i've been reading is the dewey decimal system you might you <laughs> yeah. might say why are you talking about the dewey decimal system it's actually critical right because <laughs> this is very loaded perceptions and sure, exactly. a lot of people think oh sasquatch you know yeti that's pseudoscience uh, tell me a bit about what, especially regarding your book. Right. Well, and that, that's, that was the context in, uh, for, for that um, 
consideration of the Dewey Decimal System and, and, and in the context of, of perception, as you said. You know, my, uh, when my book was published, I was quite adamant that it be uh, categorized as a work of natural history. I mean, this was a, a scientific, scholarly effort to weigh and evaluate the evidence uh, for the potential existence of such a species. And I didn't want it see it to, to see it um, trivialized by, in any way. And, and so it was, it, uh, you know, when you flip that uh, cover page and look at the information for librarians there in the back, um, on the back page, um, it, it was listed both as a work of general zoology, but as a work of controversial knowledge placed in, that, in those lower numbers of the Dewey Decimal System. I mean, to illustrate this, it, the book is carried in Barnes & Noble, and I frequently go in and, and I'll see where they have shelved the book. And I'll first check there. I mean, I want to see it right there next to Dr. Jane Goodall's books on primates. But invariably, it's over in the New Age section, somewhere between Bermuda Triangle and crop circles. And when I confronted a manager one time, she said, oh, but you'll get 10 times the traffic <laughs> in the New Age section. And I said, well, that may be, but I'd like one, at least one copy on the shelf for those people who are interested in questions mm-hmm. of natural history. Brings up an interesting point. You'd get ten times the readership right. if you're over in the, you know, the new age section. Right. But you want this to be taken seriously. You you regard this as a serious scientific book. So exactly. th- therein lies a dilemma. It is. It is a dilemma. It's uh, because on the one hand, uh, I mean, I want to uh, uh, present to uh, to all readers a, a serious side to this question, and so it's just like when I've uh, you know I've given talks in uh, in general public presentations or and even sometimes in in venues um, of the paranormal or uh, ufology and uh, I was at first I was always very reluctant to do that I did not want to be kind of subsumed into that genre but it was it provided an opportunity I was able to maintain my position and, and my stature in in um, in the realms of of um, serious science and, uh, and and draw some attention, draw some of those individuals to consider this from a much more objective, much more um, uh, biological perspective. I and mean, after all, for me, that's the question. Is there a biological species behind the legend of Sasquatch? Hmm. I want to move this to, to science, and this gets us into what is science? Right. How broadly, how, you know, how open-minded perhaps or closed-minded, I guess from your point of view, should, uh, should science be? Well, uh, science has historically been very conservative, and, and that has uh, served it well, but uh, to a degree. I mean, things have become so uh, regimented. I mean, I, I sometimes shake my head when I uh, discuss, um, you know, plans for grant proposals with colleagues, and, and they're writing grants to investigate questions that they essentially already know the answer to. And I think that spirit of exploration is sometimes lost in the conservatism and the and the um, unwillingness to to do, I mean, I mean, why should we have a category called risky science in in grant proposal writing? Um, if if there isn't a risk, then I don't think a serious question, a, a, a forging, penetrating question, has been asked. Mm. Um, and and that that's unfortunate. I mean, as I've gotten older, I've I've tried not to become cynical, but but there is a um, uh, sort of an institutional bias against things that are perceived as being unorthodox. And yet, uh, and, and, I, and I actually 
credit part of this to our lack of appreciation of the history of science. You know, we don't teach our students, and, and we ourselves perhaps have not even been in schooled in, in the history of science. And as they say, if you don't know your history, you're going to repeat the mistakes of the past. And, and one of those mistakes is the, the failure to recognize that there are paradigm shifts. There are adjustments uh, that overturn previous assumptions based on more recent discoveries and, and uh, understanding. And I think we're experiencing one of those when it comes to the potential existence of creatures living alongside Homo sapiens that are very closely related to us. And I want to get into that. Uh, we're talking with Jeff Meldrum. He is a professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University, author of uh, the book Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. And uh, Professor Meldrum's working on another book, Beatna couple of years on, on this general uh, topic. Before, before we get into that paradigm shift, um, you're going to be talking with students mm-hmm. up here at mm-hmm. USU. I believe you, uh, you know, Sasquatch, relict, uh, hominoids uh, is not your only focus in your right. science, right? But uh, perhaps naively, I think you jumped into this subject before you got tenure, which That's is, right. I imagine, a little dangerous. It was, it was. I, I must say when I my younger years, I was much more idealistic and, and actually a little bit naive. And and uh, even though I, I was aware somewhat of the history of the treatment of one of my predecessors, Dr. Grover Krantz at, at Washington State University, um, and it was some of his work that influenced my thinking as I approached this from an academic point of view. And, and I can actually remember uh, when I was kneeling beside these footprints I examined back in 96, which that was the sort of turning event that set me down this path. But but asking that very question, do you, you know, asking myself that question, do you really want to go down this path? And uh, with that evidence in front of me, I thought to myself, how could I not? I mean, that's what, that's what science is all about. And here, what a, what a fantastic opportunity to examine evidence of another bipedal primate. Being a student of the evolution of human bipedalism, I mean, what an opportunity. And I thought, you know, others would, would recognize the significance of that opportunity. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> I mean, some did. Um, the community of science is like any other cross-section of humanity in a way. Uh, and um, the reactions span the entire spectrum from, from enthusiastic interest and curiosity to just abject, visceral, irrational rejection and... Uh, a lot of ambivalence in between, so mm. an interesting experience. I want to talk about, uh, we'll get to paradigm as we go along, but I want to uh, jump immediately into <clears throat> why do we think there's, what evidence is there that uh, that makes us think there are relic uh, hominoids right. um, out there? Right. Uh, for, for example, and you, you quote this, uh, this attributed to Michael Shermer, uh, the science starts once you have a body. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't think we have a body, right? We don't. We don't. And I and I take uh, s- strong ob- uh, objection to that or exception to to that assertion on his part. It's a very unscientific statement. Um, I think most reasonable scientists would agree that science starts once you have a question and make observations, begin to collect data, and that data takes a variety of forms. I mean, the, it spans from the cultural, anthropological, and ethnographic. You know, we've mentioned the legends, the Native American traditions, to to hard uh, science, trace evidence, anecdotal evidence in the form of, of, of reported visual encounters, and so forth. 
And at each of these has its various um, uh, strengths and weaknesses, its various attributes. My expertise, as I mentioned, is in the evolution of human bipedalism, and I'm looking at the functional morphology of the lower extremity, particularly the foot, and footprints, and how they um, uh, convey information about the the pattern and timing of innovations for walking on two legs. So because of that, the footprints evidence has played a very central role in my preoccupation with this question. I now have over 300 footprint casts in my lab. That's a really significant sample from which we've been able to garner uh, some, some really important insights into the, the, the model of what the, the Sasquatch foot is and, and how it is distinct from our own and how their adaptations for walking on two legs are, are different from ours. Hmm. Maybe we should pull back and, and uh, <coughs> examine what's the theory? What, what is Sasquatch? What does he look like? Or she, I, I guess we're talking about a, a species, right? So there'd right. be man, a, woman, and children. That's right, a population. Well, it, um, I mean, I think uh, understanding the potential uh, position in, within the phylogeny is helpful, too. We're not just describing some monstrosity, some singular creature that, uh, you know, is, is, uh, uh, roams around the planet, but, um, but we're talking about a, uh, probably a species of, uh, you know, hominoid generally, perhaps even more specifically a hominin, a member of our own um, family tree, so to speak. Uh, the fact that it shares with us that habit of walking on two legs is significant. Bipedalism has always been taken as a hallmark, uh, an, an adaptation that set off our lineage from a shared common ancestor with uh, our closest kin, the chimpanzee. So if this creature is a hominin, it would have to be a fairly early offshoot. I mean, there's no evidence of tool use in, in any of the reports. There's no evidence of home bases or fire control, you know, controlled use of fire, that is, and, um, or, or other accoutrements of culture that we associate with homo. So maybe something like an australopithecine or more specifically, and I'll be talking about this in particular this afternoon, a robust australopithecine like Paranthropus of East Africa, thought to have gone extinct about 800 to 900,000 years ago. Um, so so uh, when we see aspects of Sasquatch, I mean, it's, it's actually quite interesting that the whole notion of Sasquatch actually anticipates by decades our current understanding of what it was like to be an early hominin of some, you know, three to six million years ago. Um, that, that's kind of interesting how it, uh, it has in a way predicted our current understanding, which is a really interesting test of a hypothesis, its ability to uh, predict uh, knowledge yet to come forth. Hmm. I wonder, um, uh, you know, some arguments against. Mm -hmm. uh, one that, that, you know, I think up off the top of my head is uh, why have there not been more sightings? Right. Why, why not more stories exactly. of people who have, have seen these, uh, you know, these relic hominoids? Right. Well, this is an, obviously an apologist's uh, explanation for, for the lack of evidence, but um, I think the common denominator to many of these uh, questions, why aren't there more sightings, where's the body, why aren't there fossil remains, you know, and so forth, these, are, these have their basis largely in the fact that these are very rare creatures. I mean, as a, as a population, their numbers are low. We're talking about a large-bodied hominoid, 
long life expectancy, low birth turnover. If, if we can extrapolate um, from other shared derived features in common with other hominoids, um, you know, they could live to be 50, 60 years old in, in the wild, given their large body size. There's a positive correlation with between longevity and body mass. Um, I think there, there are far fewer than, than you know, most enthusiasts would acknowledge. Uh, and, and then when you, when you think about those numbers, for example, I won't go through the, the whole mental gymnastics or the argument for, for this number, but in the state of Idaho, Slay, which has more wilderness than any other state in the lower 48, um, I would put the number in, in the range of about 100 to 150. Now, in comparison to that, we have 20,000 black bear estimated in the state of Idaho. So 150 versus 20,000. Now, if you ask some of those same questions, how often do people actually you know, have good encounters with black bear? How often do you find a black bear carcass that hasn't uh, been hit by a car or shot by a hunter, you know, um, died a natural death? Um, how extensive is the fossil record of, of ursines in, in, um, in the Pleistocene and up through present? And, and you start to see that uh, given the rarity of those events relating to a black bear, in contrast to an animal that's, you know, literally thousands of times less common, it's not that far out of a stretch to assume that uh, that we we wouldn't have that sign necessarily, especially when people aren't out there actively looking for it. Hmm. Is there uniformity in in the anecdotal reports of, of what these uh, creatures look like? Well, for the most part, yes. I think for, for amongst the credible reports, especially those that have some sort of corroboration, say in the form of you know multiple witnesses or. Um, footprint evidence to back up the the encounter. I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, when it comes to the usefulness and credibility of of uh, data, uh, eyewitness testimony is extremely varied. You know, I mentioned uh, in, in that quote you um, you related uh, reliable, informed, experienced witnesses. That's much different than um, very different than a. a, a suggestible, enthusiastic um, person out on a weekend venture to find Bigfoot who who sees Bigfoot in every overturned stone or every um, every broken up stump or or every flash of fur in the foliage. So uh, you know some of the inconsistencies uh, I think can easily be attributed to to that. but it's remarkably it is remarkably consistent, you know um, and and I think it's interesting, too, that it's devoid of the trappings we usually associate with a monster sighting. You know, there's no description of, of, of projecting canine teeth dripping in blood or long recurved claws or, um, you know, it, it's, it, the, the encounters are much more typical of the behavior and anatomies that we would associate with a large ape-like creature. Hmm. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about the uh, the famous film. I think most of us have probably seen this film, the Patterson-Gimlin film. It's uh, coming up on 50 years. That's right. This is Bluff Creek, California. It's about, what, a minute long? Yes, yeah, 60 seconds. 60 of- seconds mm-hmm. uh, worth. And, uh, and, you know, if you're thinking about Sasquatch, I think probably we, we think about the, about the film. And uh, this, is a, this is a key you know, a, a key piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. If you if you think there are uh, relic hominoids out there, 
um, or it's a, a key point to attack, I guess, and right. many, many have uh, if you don't. We'll talk about that, and we'll talk about uh, these shifting paradigm and what the existence of relic hominoids would mean in terms of evolution. Uh, more following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Logan Summerfest, presenting jewelry, sculpture, and wearable art June 14th through 16th in downtown Logan. LoganSummerfest.com This is Dr. Taki May for Bringing More to Life. Many patients and close family members are interested in discussing end-of-life issues with their physician. By speaking openly, the subject of death can become less of a taboo. People contend with fears, needs, and desires. Fear of pain, fear of indignity, fear of abandonment, and fear of the unknown. Open and direct discussions can ease many of these fears. By being involved in these discussions, you can help strengthen relationships within the family and reduce the isolation experienced by a dying parent. Talk with your parents and with their physicians so you can bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We are hearing a conversation, first broadcast in November of 2017, you have the opportunity to comment. You can comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'd love to get your uh, thoughts on this or perhaps experiences, and uh, we'll get those on at the breaks and uh, or um, the beginning of uh, the next episode of Access Utah. I wanted to get this on. This is uh, from our website, um, and this is from a listener whose username in this discussion forum is Para Breakdown who says he, referring to Professor Meldrum, is not a Sasquatch expert. There's no such thing. He's a foot anatomy expert. That's what uh, Para Breakdown says. Thanks for that. Keep those comments coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Jeff Meldrum. He's professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University author of the book Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. Um, and uh, you're invited to join this conversation. We're talking about Sasquatch, also known as Bigfoot, also known, uh, perhaps the term that uh, Professor Meldrum would, would uh, prefer, relic hominoids. And we'll get into talking as we go along in the program what uh, that would mean in terms of evolution and how the, the uh, paradigm of our understanding of evolution has been shifting Professor Meldrum would say, in t- toward uh, toward uh, more acceptance of a relic hominoid, um, and we'd love to love to get your Sasquatch sighting. Have you have you have you seen one of these uh, creatures? Tell us about it. Upraxcess at gmail dot com. Upraxcess at gmail dot com. Before we jump into uh, to the uh, Patterson Gimlin film, the famous film that I think most of us have seen, I just wanted to pull this back again, uh, Professor. I imagine there are people in this audience today, and, and, and maybe if you were to poll people nationwide, uh, this you know your view would still be in the minority, and there'd be people who would be uh, saying, "Professor, emphasis on professor, <laughs> what are you doing out here with you know in pseudoscience?" Sure. Actually, let me correct you there though, because there was actually a, a Gallup poll 
that was spawned in as a result of one of the journalistic assaults on my work that revealed that, in fact, uh, the majority of uh, Americans do at least uh, entertain an open-minded position on the possible mm. existence of such things. Okay. It's, uh, so it's kind of interesting. There's a real undercurrent of interest, which um, you know explains the, the, the uh, evergreen nature of this subject when it comes to uh, you know, cable channel documentaries and so forth. But but I'm sorry, I, I, I digressed. And uh, missed your yeah, question. I would just. Uh, so, what would you what would you say to the you know the skeptic? I imagine there are a lot of skeptics out there. Oh, there are, there are. I mean, it, it's uh, it's easy to be an, an armchair skeptic or an ideological skeptic that doubts everything, and and take pot shots at a at a, uh, a question like this. I mean, I um, and certainly this isn't uh, singled out exclusively as. Uh, as uh, the straw man for the skeptics to uh, to go after, but it it's become it's become a meme almost. If you notice on television or anywhere else in in uh, literature, uh, where Bigfoot represents anything that is difficult to find and and or to prove uh, in the affirmative, and uh, so so that's uh, I mean my my basic challenge is is to address the evidence instead of uh, instead of jumping immediately to the conclusion, you know, as Schirmer has, where's the body? The science starts once you have the body, he asserts. Um, look at the data and consider the data. Most of these skeptics are, are not qualified. Um, they're, uh, they don't have the acumen or the training, or the background to authoritatively evaluate um, the evidence at hand. But as long as the scientific community is reluctant to engage it head on, to grapple with it, then there's this void that they can easily step into and uh, basically say whatever they want to a, a, an audience. Um, I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't even hardly pick up Skeptic Inqu- Skeptical Inquirer or mm-hmm. Skeptics Magazine anymore because it's like when you open up a newspaper and read an article that uh, touches on a subject that you that's near and dear to your heart and when you see it grossly misrepresented, then you wonder how much of the other writing is accurate well, it's it's that way with with those types of magazines. The all of the things that they they often accuse me of being guilty of of cherry picking uh, data, of pleading authority, appealing to authority rather, or special pleading, um, is exactly uh, those are exactly the tactics that they use in 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 attempting to debunk the evidence that uh, that is placed before them. Hmm. Let's talk about a key piece of evidence: the Patterson Gimlin film. I didn't know that's what it was called until I was doing research for this, but but I've seen it. Sure. <laughs> of course, I think most people have. Right. 60 seconds long. It's kind of through some brush mm-hmm. and trees, but you can see pretty clearly yeah. a figure walking. Um, it's it, you know, covered with hair, mm-hmm. um, quite tall, mm-hmm. um, walking, you know, upright. Definitely. But but not quite, not quite like a human either. Not Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, so uh, tell us about this. So, the the origin of the film. This is 1967. Right, 1967. Roger Patterson, Bob Gimlin, both the residents of Yakima, Washington, were in Northern California because of a recent discovery of a long line of footprints along a logging road in the in the months previous, and they were there then to to get footage of those footprints and on the off chance that they might catch catch a glimpse of the of the track maker. 
And after several weeks of, of uh, riding their horses up and down those river, those creek beds and, and along the logging roads and so forth, they um, came around uh, a large um, a pile of, uh, of wood. There'd been a, there had been a uh, big flood that had scoured out that canyon previously. And a big crow's nest was obstructing their view upstream. As they rounded that, the horses caught scent of something. And his, Roger's horse, reared, fell on its side. His, the pack horse uh, broke loose and bolted. Roger was uh, uh, um, able to uh, retrieve his camera from the saddlebag and proceeded to run across the creek in pursuit of this creature that had been standing there on the edge of the creek, had turned and was rapidly retreating upstream. Uh, Bob Gimlin uh, uh, stayed on his horse initially and crossed the creek and then dismounted, uh, removing his firearm uh, to provide cover if necessary. But they had agreed they weren't going to shoot unless they felt that their lives were uh, were immediately threatened. Although it's interesting, uh, Rogers reported to have said uh, uh, when uh, on his deathbed, essentially, you know, he's very ill with the leukemia, that after all the abuse, after all of the brick walls they had run into, he wishes now they had just simply shot the thing and, and resolved it right then and there. Interesting perspective. But uh, the piece of film was it has remained <laughs> extremely controversial, obviously, but yet it's withstood attempts to outright debunk it for 50 years. And the uh, it's I, I find it interesting as a, as a scientist that with each sort of uh, cycle of assault, there are new tools uh, available to examine it in different ways. Um, so, for example, recently there was a there was a the ability to digitize the image, which allowed us to split the color channels digitally, which um, allowed us to ec- uh, extract the clearest, crispest imagery. Since the camera lens was uh, not corrected for chromatic aberration, simply meaning that as the light refracted through uh, that lens, different wa- uh, wavelengths, um, well, I mean, as light transmitted through the lens, different wavelengths would be slightly refracted. So some color bands, frequencies rather, were in sharp focus while some were not. It turns out red fell in focus on that film plot and blue and yellow were just a little fuzzy. So it's kind of like that Claritin commercial where they peel off the, 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 that opaque film. The same thing was the result with the Patterson-Gimlet film. Suddenly we were left with image that had lost some color information, but yet the clarity of the result, the resulting image was much enhanced. Mm. And, um, you know, I'll show, I'll show a clip of that to my anatomy students and have them pick out details of surface anatomy and comment about muscle structure that can be seen and the action of the muscles at various points in the step cycle. And, and it's there. I mean, mm. there's real anatomy. This is not a man in a fursuit. It isn't a padded costume. And, <coughs> pardon me, you know, when you reflect on what was available in 1967, I had to laugh one time on one documentary. There was a, a, a movie producer, and he looks at this and he says, oh, that's obviously a man in fursuit. And here's how we do it. And we turn the camera, uh, and here's an actor donning a, a costume. He's pulling on a spandex undergarment with included uh, sculpted foam rubber musculature. And then he takes on a four-way stretch for outfit. And uh, but with long hair to cover up the seams at the wrists and and at the ankles and around the neck, 
Um, the feet looked really ridiculous. They were just atrocious looking. Um, but now wait, in 1967, there wasn't spandex. Foam rubber was just being experimented with in, in the movie industry. If you remember the first, uh, uh, the original Planet of the Apes, those, those foam rubber um, appliances that, that went, fit around the face and around the eyebrows, around the mouth, those were, I mean, that, that won backer uh, a, uh, an Oscar for the innovation that it, it brought with it. They didn't have four-way stretch fur. It was just plain old fur cloth. So costumes tended to look like hairy pajamas rather than a tight, form-fitting costume, um, let alone finding a person, as you pointed out, to fit that you know six-and-a-half to seven-foot height and weigh probably close to 1,000 pounds. You know, it's just... Uh, it's easy to say it's a man in a fursuit until you see a man in a fursuit standing mm-hmm. beside it, especially mm-hmm. era 1967. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about evidence, but I wanted to, to go back and make sure we get this in. Uh, the the paradigms mm-hmm. and, and, and what, you know, it, if this is true. And I'm putting if in front of it um, because there are, you know, many who don't agree with this, but, uh, as you do. But um, so tell me about what, what the paradigm has been in the, in the past right. on evolution and uh, what it's become and right. then where uh, relic hominid would fit. Well, exactly. You know, I was always curious, why was there such a, just a, an adamant, um, uh, unified rejection of this uh, when, when Roger brought this film before the scientific community, first in, uh, in British Columbia and then at the Smithsonian. And uh, these, these <laughs> you know, scientists that I knew uh, of their careers and, and the influence read their books and so forth. And to say, here's some of the things that were coming from their mouths. Where, where was the, what was the basis for this? Well, back then, especially in the 60s, um, there was a paradigm called the single species hypothesis. It was based on the competitive exclusion principle, which simply states no two species can occupy the same niche and survive. One will drive the other to extinction. Well, it was argued that the hominin niche, which was, you know, characterized in broad brushstrokes by bipedalism, braininess, and above all, culture, was so odd, so unique, that there could be only one species in it. And so evolution was seen, it sort of reinforced these various depictions of evolution as this single-file linear succession of one species giving rise to another, but never two side by side. Well, and so with that in mind, for Roger to bring forth this evidence that suggested that there might be another bipedal hominid, I mean, there just was no room to accommodate it. So it, it wasn't a question of whether this was plausible or not. It wasn't even considered to be possible. So it doesn't matter what you think you have on film. It can't be real. Well, over the years, obviously, as the fossil record has grown and our understanding of it has increased, we've realized that there are multiple species living side by side. First, we had robust and gracile australopithecines, and then Richard Leakey showed, uh, you know, two million years ago, there were three species of Homo and a robust australopithecine. And, and obviously, those are probably just uh, scratching the surface. Now, when you look at the hominin family tree, you know, there's 25, 26, 27 species on there. And on the flip side of that, many of those branches have persisted until much more recently than ever appreciated before. So we have Neanderthal sites that are 10,000 years. There was recently a Homo heidelbergensis in North Africa, 13,000 years old. 
What should have really driven the notion home was the discovery of the hobbit, the Homo floresiensis in Southeast Asia, you know, with a very young uh, age of 13,000, 13 to 15,000 years, but now that's been pushed back to about 50, but still 50,000 years in the scheme of it. So this has become the theme rather than the exception, and yet the arguments about the single species hypothesis have, have just been like, like a tin can kicked down the road until now we're situated here with Homo sapiens. Well, we're the only, you know, yes, at one in the past it's acknowledged now we're multiple species coexisting across the landscape simultaneously. But now, you know, humans with their culture and their technology, their intelligence, language, we've just driven all these other species to extinction. Well, why would we assume that? Why would we adopt that position in the face of so much evidence that suggests that there might be a giant relic hominoid in North America and on the other side of the Pacific in Eastern Asia? There might be a little diminutive late Australopithecine, early Homo in Southeast Asia. There might be a relic uh, pongid in the Himalayas. There might be a relic Neanderthal or maybe Denisovan now or the other mystery species like a Heidelbergensis um, in, the, uh, in the Russian Caucasus. Um, all this evidence just continues to uh, accumulate and to mount that there could be other species alongside us. Well, now we have this context for it. And like you said, you ju- we just need the substance to, to actually fill it. What... Uh what do you think, uh, what evidence is needed to convince the scientific community as a whole? Well, ultimately, uh, and, and on this mark, see, Shermer, Shermer is, uh, is correct. And, and if he, <laughs> and that is we need a body. I mean, if, he, if he's stating that science is never going to even entertain this until you actually put the corpse under their nose, then, then I guess he is correct. But at, but that is not a, a, a idealistic characterization of how science proceeds. Let's put it that way. I've I've never advocated that the scientific community acknowledge the existence of these creatures in the absence of a type specimen. That's the historical convention that we rely upon. Um, but to to say you know show me the body as opposed to show me the evidence. Let me weigh and consider the evidence. Um, then I, I think that's an unjustified position to take. Mm-hmm. What uh, if we stipulate? Okay, there, there, there definitely are relic hominoids, not only North America but probably you know as you've been saying in in Asia and elsewhere. What uh, what would that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Well, <clears throat> when I'm asked that question, I just reflect back and ask the. Uh, uh, the individual involved to reflect back to the discovery of our other man-like apes. You know, think about the uh, the implications, uh, social and otherwise, and scientific that the discovery of chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans have had on our Western culture. That we're we're unaware of them until quite recently. You know, very different than the perceptions of the local people who who grew up uh, uh, culturally around these uh, the existence of these creatures. I think this would have, a, in many ways, the, a, a similar effect. For example, I mean, the mountain gorilla has become something of a poster child for the shrinking uh, tropical forests of Africa. I think, likewise, the acknowledgement of another uh, <clears throat> man-like species in 
human-like species in North America would maybe uh, revitalize our feelings of stewardship for our own wilderness areas on this continent. Um, and, you know, I mean, it, uh, depending on, on the degree of intelligence, on, I mean, this stands to be a species that's more closely related to Homo sapiens than any other previously. Um, looking at, uh, you know, we, we've learned a lot about our own behaviors, our own history by examining the mentality of, of the ape, uh, of chimpanzees especially, you know, through, uh, through the uh, pioneering efforts of people like Jane Goodall and, and those that have followed in her footsteps. Uh, I think uh, this might, uh, you know, have similar kinds of impacts. Mm. Jane Goodall, by the way, gave you a blurb on your book. She, she did. She says she thinks there's, she's open to the possibility. Of Absolutely. Relic hominoids. Yeah, and reinforces, you know, she doesn't come out and say, you know, Bigfoot exists, but she says, uh, you know, Jeff Beldrum has brought this to a, before the science, or brought it, uh, you know, to a scientific uh, consideration, which it, it deserves. Mm. Uh, as, as you were talking about, uh, you know, the, the possibilities and the possible meaning and impact, uh, I was thinking about... Um, Previously uncontacted tribes, for example, right. there's there's an analogy you might draw, and the bad effects right. on those those tribes. So actual contact might not be so good for relic hominoids. Potentially, I, I you're absolutely right, and and uh, and and people have have made that point to me, um, saying why do you why do you pursue this? Why don't you just leave them alone? And um, uh, you know, I, uh, from, from an ethical perspective, I, I wrestle with that uh, question um, in order to justify my uh, professional academic pursuit of this question. You know, I have to address it as a scientist, first and foremost, in, in that, you know, when I'm wearing that hat. But there are times when I, uh, you know, reconsider uh, some of our approaches or some of our methodologies um, while I'm wearing another hat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm reminded of Dr. Grover Krantz, my, one of my predecessors, who stated that the first person, he, he advocated the collection of a specimen by lethal means. He felt that that was going to be the only way to resolve it uh, to the satisfaction of uh, scientific demands. And and so he advocated the, the the lethal collection and said that the first person who brought a corpse in should be given you know a million dollar reward and and but the second person that shoots a bigfoot should be fined a million dollars and thrown in prison for ten years and um, I I think that you know that uh, describes this sort of knife edge that we're on the the sense of obligation to um, recognize these creatures, but yet the r- tremendous responsibility that will come with that acknowledgement. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have our final segment with Jeff Meldrum, who is professor of uh, uh, anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. He's author of the book Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. We are talking about uh, Sasquatch, uh, Bigfoot, Yeti, um, relic hominoids on the uh, program today. You're welcome to join this conversation upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. We'd love to get your thoughts or uh, if you've had a a personal experience, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. More following this break. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Jeff Meldrum. He is professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University, uh, just uh, up the road here in Pocatello, Idaho, and he is in studio. I'm glad to have him in the studio. He's author of Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science, and um, he is an expert on uh, Sasquatch, also known as Bigfoot, also known as potential relic hominoid. We've been talking about that and uh, changing paradigms in the understanding of evolution and what that might mean. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the evidence, especially in uh, your field of expertise, the the footprints. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're an expert in deriving from that, I guess, the motions of animals and and, and such. And, of course, uh, I think you probably, I'm guessing, matched up. Were there footprints in the Patterson-Gimlin? There were. Case? There were. They weren't immediately evident in the film itself, but after some uh, more careful scrutiny, in fact, examples were uh, identified that, that were visible in the film. But the trackway itself was was very, very clear. The, the sandbar that uh, the film subject crossed um, was not sand of a, of a quartz kind of origin, granitic origin, but it was a very eroded um, slate. And so the gran- grains were very angular, and held their shape remarkably well. So Roger and, and Bob immediately cast a right and a left, uh, a cl- the clearest examples they could find, you know, almost virtually a mold of the foot. You know, footprint is actually a very dynamic signature of the interaction of the foot with the substrate. But in this case, very, very clear footprints. Um, and then witnesses were able to come back there days and even weeks later and see very clear examples of these tracks. Uh, the Sasquatch track is not just an enlarged facsimile of a human footprint. Instead, it it differs in a number of ways, including much greater breadth, obviously greater size overall, but proportionately a much greater breadth, a very flatter foot, no indication of a permanent longitudinal arch. Um, the toes are more subequal in size, um, and uh, and obviously don't show the the signs of of shoe wear. You know, one of the real giveaways for a footprint that uh, uh, might be attributed to Sasquatch that's in the uh, human size range is to just look at the little toe. And if the little toe is turned inward and lying on its side almost, um, then you know that person has worn shoes all their life. It's a real good, um, a little test or a tell of a, of a human footprint. Um the tracks at this at the film site uh, that were documented by one investigator, Bob Titmus, he came and with enough material to cast ten footprints in succession, regardless of their quality, and uh, provided a remarkable example then of the of the variation of those types of animated uh, features that you know that you suggest um, that are informative about the action of the foot, not only its its morphology but its uh, but its kinematics. And one of those in particular had a very distinctive pressure ridge. Turns out nearly all of them did. When you turn them on their side and look at them from the side view, almost each and every one of them has this mid-tarsal pressure ridge, uh, which suggests the foot retains a great deal of flexibility, something that's more ape-like in its character that originally allowed for apes with a divergent big toe to climb up trees. The fore part of the foot was a prehensile portion, the hinge joint sort of between the midfoot uh, allowed then the heel to act as a lever independent of that prehensile. So you had propulsion and prehension wed together, 
Well, in a Sasquatch foot, the prehension has been lost to a degree with a non-divergent big toe, but relatively long, flexible toes that are obviously very useful in climbing up steep, broken terrain in the wilderness. But then that uh, that hinge joint across the midfoot allows them to navigate more efficiently and more effectively that uh, very steep terrain. Um, and that fundamental morphology is, you know, and that's 1967. Mm. That's at a time when the understanding of the biomechanics of, of human locomotion and non-human locomotion especially, and uh, uh, especially that associated with bipedalism in early hominids, was unknown, essentially, or poorly known. Um, by anthropologists particularly, but, uh, you know, just coming into its own in the fields of orthopedics and podiatry. Let me, mm-hmm. um, let me. We, we have an email, which, uh, and Glenn has some interesting questions. We're running out of time, so I want to make sure we, uh, yep. we'll uh, have to ask uh, you to be, uh, we'll have to have you be brief on these interesting yes, questions. That, certainly. Uh, we just have about three minutes left. So Glenn has uh, emailed us. A couple questions, he says. What would something like that eat? If it weighed around 1,000 pounds, it would require a large caloric and protein intake. Would uh, With that, would this creature be a herbivore, carnivore, or omnivore? So one question. Even with foot measuring about uh, 8 inches by 18 inches, 144 square inches, this creature would have to migrate out of uh, heavy snow regions. This would potentially push it closer to contemporary human-occupied areas, therefore increasing the chances of airings and interaction. Wouldn't migration patterns become somewhat uh, consistent, therefore, more easily observed. And finally, game cameras have become ubiquitous. Why haven't these captured any Sasquatch photos? There have been confirmed photos of extremely rare animals such as wolverines photographed in Utah recently, many decades after they were thought to be extinct. He signs it, Glenn playing devil's advocate. Right. So your your brief response, I guess, first to yes. uh, what would uh, yeah, Sasquatch brief. eat? Sure. Well, yeah, omnivore is, is seems to be the case. Uh, reports uh, uh, of uh, food items span from Roots and berries right on up to deer and elk. Um, as far as my uh, winter activity, we don't know, uh, and we can only speculate, although there is some really interesting um, information recently, some genetic information about the genes responsible for hibernation and hyper- hibernation-like behaviors in mammals um, that are present in the human genome. And the Human Genome Project has revealed some of these, and, and there's more to be learned. So whether they hibernate or estivate or move altitudinally and occupy areas of lower elevation during the winter, we, we just honestly don't know. I think the rarity of these creatures makes the expectation of uh, finding sufficient data to document patterns of migration is just is not, is not there. Um, I mean, the only patterns that we have found are the recurring uh, observation of individuals over over sometimes decades of time where their footprints have been identified, but they're usually fairly consistent in the season in which they are there. So that suggests some sort of movement uh, patterns, but yet, uh, you know, we just don't have the data to make those kinds of speculations. Um, and the final one was? The, uh, the camera, game cameras. Game cameras, yeah. right. Well, there. This has always been a vexing one, and, and I've even had some personal experiences. You know, coming up on a camera in a remote, very remote area of placement to find the back in the days before they were digital cameras, they were film cameras and and had wiring and so forth. Finding the casing open, no sign of claws or teeth, the camera dangling there outside of the uh, the housing. Um, what would have been responsible for that? 
Um, you know, it could have been a human, but usually when there are human, human interventions, the camera's gone. I mean, these things were too, uh, too tempting for most people to leave. There is a growing literature that does identify, in fact, studies that have been conducted to show avoidance behavior in various species, particularly predators, you know, higher intelligence, um, coyotes and, and cougars and such, uh, where whether it's um, EM emissions, whether it's light leakage, whether it's lingering human scent, whether it's just the novelty of something on the, on the trail that wasn't there the day before. They actually have documented species circumventing the game cameras before triggering them. Oh, uh, we are just about out of time. Uh, just thirty seconds. What's uh, <laughs> what's the takeaway? Do you think? What what are your final words on this? Well, I you know there there are are all sorts of uh, questions that can be raised. You know, by the devil's advocate. But my my challenge back, if if we can end on that note, is rather than concentrate on the negative. In other words, why don't you have this evidence? Why don't you have that, that evidence? You know, there's that old adage, the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. But instead, how about uh, a turn attention to the evidence at hand and critically evaluating it? Something's making footprints. Something's leaving these tracks in the ground. And it should be fairly straightforward, in my opinion it is, to separate a hoax from a bona fide footprint of a, of a living creature. So maybe uh, a little more energy and light shed uh, in that direction would be useful. We've been talking with Jeff Meldrum. He is professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University, and uh, he is author of Sasquatch, Legend Meets Science. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.